0: Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for a number of episodes is going to be Matthew chapters 5 to 7 a section of the Bible better known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. We will take a look at the first few verses in a moment. But I believe it's important to look at some vital parts of the backstory in order for us to capture the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Let me start with the state of play in the people Jesus is interacting with. We know, of course, that this is the people of Israel. And these people have been in a very interesting position for quite some time at this point. They had once been a powerful monarchy and experienced this in a very unique way. God was always their sovereign, but he also anointed and chose human kings to rule his people. The bar of human monarchy was set really high with David, but even he was not everything he should have been. Despite this, the Lord promised a king through David. And this was alluded to time and again, even when Israel's monarchy had been dissolved by outside occupation and captivity. This prophetic picture of a king increased in stature, and over time he would be spoken of as having divine authority, even if the Jews missed his complete divinity in that. And he would be a messiah, a divinely appointed deliverer and ruler of their nation, one who would lead them perhaps into their golden age once again. In the days before Jesus' arrival, this messianic expectation was running at fever pitch, and this made some people, such as King Herod, actually quite nervous. But among the people, there was a lot of messianic kingdom preparation going on. Everyone in Israel was aware of God somehow coming to a place of full sovereignty again, and that they should be a principal part of God's sovereign rule. And also, this sovereign rule would have global and eternal influence but there was a wide range of ways this was being done. The Pharisees were doing this by calling the nation to the flawless keeping of the Torah, the Old Testament law, in the hope that if enough people did this, they could get a critical mass holy enough to take arms and overthrow the pagan rulers. The zealots were a bit more coarse about it, seeing themselves as agents of judgment against pagan rule, basically using terrorist methods to take out occupying forces. The Essenes were an isolated bunch who stayed in desert places pursuing their godliness out there, believing they were God's set-apart new covenant people who would be elevated when God's time was right. Because of their location, they are not featured in the gospel narratives. The Sadducees were more of a status quo sort of people who shied away from anything radical or spiritual or anything that would upset their rulers. They were able to safely occupy seats of power such as the priestly order. They could hold some wealth and land ownership without Roman scrutiny because they didn't upset the apple cart. Between all these mindsets, a nation was aware of change being afoot. They were all getting ready in their own way. But they were all differing in their approaches and were anticipating God's kingdom in very different ways. Were any of them right? Well, the Sermon on the Mount... Actually, speak into that. And then we have the story of Jesus in this. If you read the first four chapters of Matthew before this sermon is delivered, we see a very deliberate presentation of who he is, bearing in mind that Matthew's first audience was a Jewish one. In chapter one, Jesus is very clearly traced back to the lineage of Abraham. This makes him, in human terms, a true son of Israel. In chapter two, A Messianic promise of being born in Bethlehem is confirmed. But then Jesus is taken to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod the Great. Matthew 2.15 quotes Hosea 11 to speak of Israel being called out of Egypt, and then ties Jesus with this idea also. Jesus is the Son, and He is also now walking in the steps of the story of Israel. In chapter 3, Jesus, who was last seen coming out of Egypt, comes of age and goes through the waters of baptism. And immediately in the narrative of chapter 4, coming out of Egypt, going through the water, he enters the wilderness, 40 days to retell the 40 years of Israel. Then after all that, Jesus begins his public ministry at roughly the age of 30, which was the common age for a priest to commence their duties and having been anointed and washed and endorsed by another priest, which John the Baptist was by birth. So as prophet, great high priest, Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God, and the true hope of Israel and the world, we then see he inaugurates his kingdom in chapter 4 verse 17, and calls every Jew in earshot to forsake all the agendas mentioned earlier, and choose to come on board with his way instead. His message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he selects 12 disciples. That's a key number in the Hebrew retelling of this story. Then after Egypt, the waters, the wilderness, the kingdom, and the followership comes the mount. Again, the story of Israel is all over this too. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, the nation is given instructions about entering the promised land. They were to assemble in a place called the Valley of Sechem. In the first century, this was in the region of Samaria. On either side of the valley are mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. From Gerizim, the blessed life would be described by the priests and affirmed by the people. And from Ebal, its opposite would be described. According to Matthew, for the sake of his Jewish audience, Jesus, the divine son, would be the true Israel that the Abrahamic people could not be. And now, all of Israel's human kingdom agendas were off the table, and King Jesus is now inaugurating a whole new way. With all that backstory covered, it's time to look at our first passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1-3. to 3. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew clearly wants his audience to see something significant being said here. The first word that comes from Jesus is this one, blessed. It was more than a word to them. It was a way of life which reflected their state before God. From the moment the people stepped into the promised land, they were taught to remember and choose the position they wanted to live under. The first Psalm, chapter 1, shows this concept to us again when David writes this in verses 1-2. to Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on His law day and night. In other words, if you made the right choices in life, which was nothing other than delight in God's way, you would attract the hand and the blessing of God. In Hebrew, the word for blessed meant to be right, level, or happy. It was a word that spoke of balance and satisfaction. Hebrew blessing went well beyond mere financial or material reward. A blessed Hebrew... Was a well rounded, balanced, satisfied, and therefore happy individual. They were confident in themselves because they were certain of the hand of God on their life, and their whole being benefited from that position. The New Testament Greek idea also speaks to a degree of happiness. However, modern theologians such as John Stott feel that's a little bit simplistic or too reliant on feelings rather than reality. Another theologian, Tom Wright, likes the phrase wonderful news. describe blessing, and that can fit given that's what the gospel is. Another one, R.T. Kendall, is a bit more emphatic and uses the word congratulations, because being blessed means being approved by God. Others speak of being blessed as being in an enviable position, and that certainly has truth to it too. When Israel was blessed, the nations around them were definitely envious. So when this sort of blessing is demonstrated correctly, people will see the balanced, enviable, God-approved happiness of the Beatitudes. And this will produce a response from those around you that says, I want what you have. Unfortunately, the final word of the Old Testament showed God taking the opposite stance. In Malachi, we read of a corrupt priesthood and tainted sacrifices. We read of a corrupt people living in the pursuit of family breakdown and injustice. We then read further and see a nation that God established now shaking their fist at God and withdrawing their hearts from him. This position leaves the final chapter of biblical Hebrew history in a state of curse. And all of Israel's efforts up to this point, the Pharisaic holiness, the zealous terrorism, the Essene withdrawal, the Sadducee tolerance none of these were moving the needle. But the new way, The new kingdom could change everything. Israel had not heard the word blessed used in a prophetic way in centuries, and now it was being spoken of as possible again. Could the hand of God rest on his people once again? Yes, it could. But not just on their nation, but anyone who would embrace the lifestyle that Jesus would outline here. So who would be the people that Jesus would describe as blessed? What does the kingdom of God call a balanced, level, satisfied, happy follower. Which Jewish kingdom approach was Jesus going to endorse? Jesus completes his sentence, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. That last line indicates ominously that the kingdom of God is not for everybody, because not everyone will come to a true realization of their spiritual state. The Pharisees were not going to get this kingdom by bringing their resumes of good things. The Sadducees were needing to actually make a call, rather than sit on the fence. The Zealots had to look at the enemy within themselves, not the Romans. Everybody was being put on notice here. Humanity is spiritually destitute. And while our human effort to put things right might sound like a good thing, nothing gets God's approval like humility and complete submission to God's assessment of things, not our own. Jesus was calling his followers to live differently and see their relationship with God differently. The truth is this, no amount of ritual and rule-keeping can add any form of wealth to our spirit. The spiritual connection with God is all about His grace extended to us, not the works we think we can extend to Him. It's true what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8-9. to It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The poor in spirit are those that acknowledge their own helplessness to save themselves, and instead they acknowledge their complete reliance on the all-powerful, the all-knowing, and the ever-present God to extend the grace they need to save them. They know that it's not the rituals they observe, but only the work of the cross that saves them. So they place their confidence and faith in what Jesus did, rather than what they try to do for themselves. When we look at the churches in Revelation, we see a bit of this attitude examined more, and it's interesting how Jesus interacts with the different mindsets of the churches. The city of Smyrna has a church where its followers have been forced into poverty because of their faith. The trade unions, which were based on idolatry, have pushed them out and work and charity is hard to come by. Their greatest asset is their eternal perspective of life, even if it means accumulating nothing in the presence, and Jesus calls this church rich because of it. Meanwhile, down the road in Laodicea, there is comfort and wealth, and with it a false perception of blessing that comes with it. Sadly, their response to this supposed blessing is to take the foot off the pedal in their faith, and they've been deemed spiritually bankrupt when Jesus appears. He calls them lukewarm, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, and fallen. Disciples are invited into a blessed and approved life, but they can only become that by the awareness of the poverty of their spirit. And they live a truly happy and blessed life because their dependence on God's grace is rewarded with the kingdom of God remaining near to them. Through humble faith and complete reliance on the saving wealth of God, they enter this inaugurated kingdom now, and they live fueled with the hope of the kingdom fully realized in eternity. So let's at this time consider a few quick reflections. First, the ancient Jews had a lot of preconceived ideas about the things of God that might have sounded humanly reasonable, but in the end needed to be dropped in order to embrace the kingdom way. I wonder if we may be in that position. Are we willing to fully abdicate our own agendas and ways if in the next few episodes we learn they clash with the way the kingdom of God operates? Second, what do you expect from the idea of blessing? This is a position of life which Jesus invites us into, where the Lord keeps his hand on our lives and continually shows approval to us, and this is accessed by faith. So how do you approach it? If blessing means to you the levelness, balance, and happiness that comes from living under the approval of God, then I would say you'd be on the right scriptural track. If blessing means to you being a citizen of the kingdom of God, with the understanding that this kingdom has a now but not yet element to it, and so do all the blessings that come with it, then I'd say you are on the right scriptural track. If blessing means prosperity problem-free and even sickness-free living with all your wildest dreams coming true, then friend, I believe we may have a problem there. Consider this, friends. If you never earn a huge wage or drive an expensive car, can you call yourself blessed? If our health is never at its best and we battle even life-threatening illness, can we call ourselves blessed? If we go through difficulties in life and experience real struggles, can we still call ourselves blessed? The answer to that under Jesus has to be a resounding yes. The audience at the hill that day had all sorts of issues facing them. Their nation was under the rule of tyranny and military might, and Jesus didn't come bearing weapons or a military strategy. The disciples would face the threat of death and hardship simply because they said yes to this kingdom. Yet the life Jesus was calling his followers to had a far greater outlook than all of that. It was eternal because the kingdom Jesus came to establish was eternal. It was also global, and the Jewish followers needed to be prepared to lead the world, just not the way they had hoped. And finally, consider this first beatitude. Are we poor in spirit? Are we aware of our own spiritual emptiness and aware of our need and complete reliance on Jesus? We are helplessly unable to save ourselves. And if we cling to the grace of God rather than a false confidence in our own works, we will be in the right, approved place before God. Let's leave it there and let's end this episode with a word of prayer. Jesus, help me to pursue blessing as you describe it, not the consumeristic concept I sometimes reduce it down to. Help me to become level and happy in the way you call me to be. I acknowledge the spiritual poverty that I am in without you. I thank you that the blessed life is given through your grace, not my works. Help me to live in a way where there is less of me and more of you in all I am and all that I do. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.